This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-unders, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through safe and secure processes. Check out the FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today, as always, for our final regular season podcast are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Limberg. Say hello, Ben, Mr. Chalk Limberg. Hello. We're going to do things a little bit backwards because time is short. The end is nigh. So we're going to start uh, with a version of this week's unnamed playoff odds segment. So we're going to not dwell so much on, on the numbers because we're close enough to the end that we could sort of eyeball these these teams' playoff probabilities as we record early on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, but the let's start with the the big risers. The the Brewers are up 25% uh, in, in their playoff odds in the past seven days. Also rising are the Cardinals and the Reds. They're two major competitors in the National League Central, two of them playing probably for three playoff spots. Yeah, remember how tight we thought the NL Central was going to be coming into the season? We were really looking forward to that. (laughs) Yeah, and it turned out to be exactly as tight as we thought it would be. It's just that this was a 60-game season, and so we didn't get to see that play out over six months. But basically, it worked out that way. So as we speak right now, the Cardinals are 27 and 25, still catching up on the games they missed, may not catch up on all of them. The Brewers are 27 and 27. The Reds are 28 and 28. So really, other than the Cubs at the top and the Pirates at the bottom, there is next to no separation between these teams. And yeah, since we talked a a week or so ago, things have looked up for the Brewers. The Reds have finished strong. I 
sort of was rooting for the Reds in a sense, just because I thought their underlying talent was good. I picked them to be a, a wildcard team before we knew that there was going to be a 16-team playoff field. So I sort of expected them to make it. And because they were so aggressive and active over the offseason, it seemed like it would be fun if they made it. And of course, they have the pitching and it seemed like they had improved on the position player and fielding side too, but those guys just had not delivered until lately. But it seems like they have come together at just the right time. They're getting some offense now. They're pairing it with that great pitching, and it looks like it's going to be enough. But there's still some doubt about both of those teams. And for the Cardinals, there's the interesting wrinkle that right now they only have 58 games on their schedule because they missed so many with the COVID-19 outbreak earlier this season. Right now, they have a two-game makeup against Detroit that is TBD on whether it's played or not. Uh, right now, the Cardinals have a big series with the Brewers coming up this weekend where they have five games in four days. And if after that series is over, it's unclear whether the Cardinals are in the playoffs or not, they have to play a doubleheader against the Tigers on Monday next week. Kind of sucks for the Tigers that the season would be over and then they have to get themselves up for a game that could either knock the Cardinals or a different National League team out of the playoffs. And I think Major League Baseball has said that those games will not be played if it's just a matter of seeding purposes. But depending on how the series goes against the Brewers, the Cardinals might be teetering on the edge of that seven or eight spot in the National League. And that would be a really strange way for this season to end, kind of bringing the the COVID-19 of it all full circle. So I'll be writing for tomorrow's uh for the website tomorrow, uh, sort of a breakdown of the bottom half of the NL playoff bracket and how that might shake out based on last weekend. The Brewers and the Cardinals are the only uh, members of that sort of second tier of, of National League teams that are going to actually play somebody else from that tier this weekend. And I just looking at the pitching matchups, I really like the way the Brewers are set up. They've got Corbin Burns set to go on Thursday. They hit Jack Flaherty pretty hard the last time they saw him a couple weeks ago. They've got Woodruff going on Saturday with the, the bullpen. We're going to talk about some of uh, Milwaukee's relievers once it gets to the awards section. But I, I really like the Brewers who... As of, as of the time we're recording right now, have not been over 500 at any point this year. I like them to maybe get as as high as the the number five spot uh, in the National League. I think that they're it's a cliche to say that they're peaking at the right time, and I don't think what I mean by that is what people usually mean by that. Where like they rope doped, like I just think they're playing really good baseball right now. They're in a good, they're in a really good situation uh, as far as controlling their own destiny. Yeah, so those three teams, those three central teams that we just talked about, they are the three top risers by playoff odds since we last spoke, and really the only teams whose fortunes have improved significantly since then, but obviously that's come at the expense of other teams in the potential NL playoff field. Every team, really, that has moved in either direction in any significant way since last week is a National League team because the AL playoff field has just been pretty much set for a while now. So the teams that have suffered at the expense of those central teams are the Giants, the Rockies, the Mets, and the Phillies. The Phillies are the biggest losers. And technically, none of those teams has been eliminated, right? There's still a, a handful of teams that are currently on the outside looking in, but could potentially make it you know a lot of them would have to win out basically and, and get a little lucky with the teams they're competing with but 
I don't know whether that qualifies as like a, a good, exciting end to the season compared to a typical playoff race. I would say probably worse, right? Just because there are still some races at stake here, but whether you win a division or you know finish second or or win another playoff spot just doesn't really matter that much this season because of the playoff format. And all the teams that are kind of on the bubble right now are just not very good teams, you know? So obviously their fans care, I think, about whether they make the playoffs or not. But for a neutral observer, you're not necessarily sitting here going, I need to see the Giants in this playoff field. October is going to be boring if I don't see the Giants or the Phillies or, yeah, you know, whoever. It's not like there is a, a great team that is in danger of missing out, really, that the great teams are assured. And really, it's now just going to be, well, what 500-ish team is going to make it and what 500-ish team is not. So right now, I think the the Phillies have the most at stake, probably, as we spoke about last week, just in terms of (laughs) the reputation of that club and where they stand and the job security of the people who are making decisions for that team. But The other teams, I think they're varying levels of disappointment, but not really much surprise that they wouldn't end up in the playoffs. See, I actually very much care about whether the Phillies make the playoffs, and that's for pure entertainment purposes. I wrote a piece a couple years ago, I think in the midst of Craig Kimbrell's postseason meltdowns for the 2018 Red Sox, and I discovered that game postseason games with a blown save are 45% more exciting than games without a blown save. And that's measured by win probability added. And it's also adjusted for margin of victory. So basically, if there's a blown save, you can expect a game to be, you know, one and a half times as exciting as a game without a blown save. And if the Phillies get in the playoffs, we are guaranteed for at least a blown save. The the Phillies bullpen right now has a 7.21 ERA the worst for any team since 1950. And Mike, I know you wrote about that, so I'll I'll clear out for you in a second. But I am very invested in the Phillies uh, making the playoffs, especially in the first round. You could have Nola and Wheeler throwing two gems, but like it's fun when pitch counts matter. I think bullpens have become so dominant that it doesn't matter as much now if you know a guy needs 20 pitches to get through an easy inning but i think with the phillies that's definitely true because if it gets to the 7th inning and the phillies are leading the dodgers 2 to 1 but nola's up to 115 pitches or something that's going to be gripping and i very much want that to happen yeah that's pretty much a point i was going to make when ben said that neutral fans aren't really worried about the phillies missing the playoffs after watching the reaction of brandon workman blowing that save uh, last night, I could tell you that neutral fans like Zach said, like the barbecue boys <clears throat> were tweeting about last night, are very invested in watching Brandon Workman and his merry men in the playoffs. It's not um, a very workman like bullpen. Has anyone ever made that joke? I'm the first, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> anyway, the we're just going to get past that. Uh, the so the the thing about Nolan Wheeler and. It, it, this is something that Joe Girardi was hoping to wrap up to all but wrap up a, a playoff spot before the weekend so he could rest those guys because that the this Phillies lineup, even with Reese Hoskins sort of on the um 
uh, on the bubble for whether or not he's going to make it back. Uh, if you send Nola and Wheeler and one of Spencer Howard, if he comes back or Zach Eflin out there for a potential game three, this is a scary team t- for anybody in the National League to face, no matter what the bullpen does to the pooch in the later innings. And th- I think that would have made whoever the Phillies face, whether it's the Braves, whether it's the Dodgers, um, whether it's um, the the Padres or the Cubs in the first round, that would have made it for a really compelling series. Now they're going to have to burn Wheeler and Nola just to get in. And even then, like it's not a, it's far from a sure thing whether or not they're, they're going to be able to, to make it in, even if they win out. And right now this team, like it, it sure feels like they've dropped 35.2% uh, in their playoff odds in the past in the past week. Like there's a little, there's well, there's a little bit, there's a lot of, of here we go again, sort of floating around. And so, uh, because this is a team that's, that's collapsed after the trade deadline, each of the past two seasons. And so there's, it, it almost feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. So I agree with you, Zach, that it will be very exciting for neutral fans if they got into the playoffs somehow. Uh, but they're at the very edge of the bubble. And I are just, unless something, They've got enough talent that they can turn it around, but just the way things seem to be trending, it seems more likely to me that they'll uh, end up in, in God, it would be last place, wouldn't it, if the Mets caught them? So congratulations, Zach, on on being right yet again. Well, the Nationals are behind them. Oh, that's right. Has any team ever enjoyed, that's a weird verb to use, but has ever any team ever enjoyed a sub-500 season more than the Nationals right now, like they don't care. They just won the World Series. It's a weird season. They're fine. I mean, a lot I less forgot. That, I the forgot Phillies. they were in last place. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the Phillies could conceivably finish in either the playoffs or last place right now. Right? I think both of those outcomes are still in play. So we don't know for sure how either bracket is gonna is gonna set up, um, but we can sort of see a couple of, of matchups taking place. So I just wanted to ask before we move on to a more big picture look at the season, is there a uh, a playoff matchup, whether it's in the first round or something you can see lining up down the pike uh, that you're looking forward to? And uh, I guess we'll start with Ben. Well, we talked last time about the potential for Yankees twins, right? And and you uh, told me I was being cruel and merciless to and twins fans. I stand I by that. And, <laughs> and the that fact may that you're still doubling be true. down on that being something that you enjoy, I think is is uh, yeah, says it's, a lot. It's still on my list. I think that's up there in terms of potential matchups that would carry some extra intrigue. I think to the extent that Giants-Dodgers is still possible, I would still be very interested in seeing that happen just because that would be just a a complete manifestation of this weird season where nothing was really predictable going in that the Chaos Giants could make it and then have a really good shot of knocking off the best team in baseball by far. That just shows you how the the 16-team playoff format works. So I think those two probably... But I think in matchups that don't really carry that same sort of baggage or or tradition with them, I'd love to see something like a, a Padres Blue Jays World Series or a, a Padres White Sox World Series. You know, I, I think one of those would be really exciting because those teams are sort of similarly made up. They've had some semi-similar paths to getting to this point. They have a bunch of young, exciting position players. Like in terms of just matchups that we haven't seen, players we haven't seen on that stage, 
and previews of the next decade of contending teams in baseball, I think that would be a pretty exciting way for it to end. I'm looking at two matchups that if the postseason started today, actually would happen. They're both the the two seven matchups in the first round. No, and that's because yep. I'm a sucker for unstoppable force versus immovable objects. And right now, the two best starting rotations in baseball by a, a pretty considerable margin, uh, according to Fangraph's war, belong to Cleveland and Cincinnati. And those teams would be facing the White Sox and the Braves. And those are two of the best lineups in baseball. Atlanta leads the majors and runs, not just because of Freddie Freeman, who we'll talk about in a bit, and Ronald Acuna, but career years from guys like Travis Darneau and Adam Duvall. Uh, Marcelo Zuna is hitting again. And I think it would be really fun to watch the strategic matchup between Cincinnati's starters and Atlanta's lineup. Same goes with Cleveland and the White Sox, who have already battled a bunch this year, uh, are currently playing uh, this week. And I think seeing the up-and-coming Cleveland pitchers like Bieber up against the up-and-coming Chicago batters, none of whom have ever really played in the postseason before, except for, I guess, Yasmani Grandal, who is new to the team. Uh, I think those would be really fun wrinkles to watch where it's just strength versus strength and whoever can rely on the strongest part of the roster the most. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to highlight, at least the way that the um, the bracket shakes out right now. And as much as the other thing I want to to highlight is the whoever the Dodgers face in the first round, it'll probably be interesting because I think the the uh, the Reds would be an interesting matchup for them. The Phillies would be an interesting matchup. I I second Ben uh, mentioning the, that he wants to see the Giants get a crack at this Dodgers team. But even I don't know that this might be like the least enticing option for an eight seed. Uh, but I really enjoyed the, the Brewers Dodgers uh, NLCS from a couple years ago, and I could definitely go for three more games of that. That was a really, really interesting stylistic contrast between maybe the two best managers in the national league. And I think, uh, I would definitely be up for seeing three more games of that now that the Brewers seem more up to it. Uh, the other thing sort of looking ahead to the second round, we could, the one, the one versus winner of four or five could be really interesting. Um, well in the national league, the way it shakes out right now, if that's the Cardinals, we could see the Dodgers and the Cardinals play each other for the 400th time in the playoffs since 2000. Uh, but obviously I think everybody's looking their lips for a potential uh, Padres Dodgers second, second round matchup and echoing that sort of big brother, little brother, uh, real matchup of juggernauts. The same thing could happen in the American league if the Rays and Yankees advance. So that both of those, I think would be a point of viewing and then some. So should we talk about how the playoff field shook out as a whole, just because coming in, it could have ended almost any conceivable way. I mean, with the 60-game season, something we talked about before the season started was just how wide open the possibilities were, how it would have been possible for bad teams to make it into the playoff field, how it would have been possible for good teams to miss. And of course, expanding from 10 to 16 teams sapped some of the intrigue from that question. Like, imagine what we would be looking at right now if the same results had happened, but we hadn't had the 16-team field the Astros would be missing the playoffs, right? Which I don't think anyone except Astros fans would be shedding any tears about. And we'd probably get even more discourse about, well, is it because of the lack of sign stealing or is it because of massive injuries and just the variability of a, a short schedule, et cetera? But 
there would be some weirdness if that had happened. And now we don't have as much weirdness. And when you look at the 16-team playoff field now, to me, I think it's a pretty good mix of teams that we think are good and would want to be in the playoffs if we want to consider it at all legitimate and as entertaining as it could be, and teams that we probably wouldn't have forecasted to be playoff teams. I mean, you still do have the Marlins in there as of now, which is fun. So if you wanted it to be full, complete chaos and, hey, let's get the Orioles in there and let's get the Tigers in there. That didn't happen, but we also don't have to have a playoffs without the Dodgers or without the Yankees or the Twins or the Rays or any of those other good teams. And we also get to see the White Sox and the Padres. It's a really good mix, I think, of teams that were almost certain to be there that have been there year in and year out and teams that have not been there for a while, which you'd expect given that the playoff field is so huge. But I think I'm pretty happy with the way it worked out, all things considered. You left out that, of course, even with a shorter season and a 16-team playoff field, the Angels are still not (laughs) in the playoffs. (laughs) There is that. (laughs) Uh, I think if I were to design an ideal 16-team bracket uh, for... For my own entertainment purposes, I think I would... So occasionally you (laughs) say stuff, you start sentences like that, that like it drives home... How much time you've spent thinking about this on in your in your spare time? <laughs> so, I, I think I would want one more, uh, particularly in the America in the American League Cinderella squad. I don't think any of those teams that really had a chance as of a week or two ago are going to end up making it. Seattle uh, seems pretty far behind the Astros at this point. Detroit, uh, Baltimore. Who knows what would have happened if only Anthony Santander hadn't gotten hurt? But I think they're if the design is supposed to be a, a March Madness feel, then you need at least a couple shots at a true upset. And especially in a best of three series, I wouldn't really be surprised at any outcome in the American League first round. I guess maybe Toronto upsetting Tampa would be surprising, but pretty any other outcome would kind of be expected. Like the Astros are a six seed. Would anybody be shocked if they went in and beat Oakland in the first round? So I think it would be better if there were at least one true upset series we could look at. Like I do not want the Marlins to end up with the five seed in the national league because I don't want the Marlins to play the Padres. That's like when the NCAA selection committee makes the two mid majors play each other. And it's like VCU versus Stephen F. Austin in the first round. And that's no fun because you want to see those teams have a chance to beat the blue bloods. And I think there are still conceivable ways where this playoff field can can get more fun but i i guess to ben's broader point i am kind of surprised that it ended up as normal as it's going to be and didn't have more chaos so i i want to push back against that march madness metaphor a little bit because as much as the american league uh i don't don't want to say that the i thought these were the eight best teams in the al going into it because i was definitely much higher than than uh on the Rangers and probably a little bit higher on the angels who are going to get eliminated within hours of this podcast. But I think the, the blue Jays are like, they're a perfect Florida Gulf coast or George Mason, like they're or Davidson. Like they're not only like young and, and scrappy and sort of an unknown quantity. They're, they're stylistically distinct, which, you know, you look at, at their, their wide boys, you know, Alejandro Kirk and, 
and Vladimir Guerrero. Like there's, there's not really anything. I don't, I don't know. Like this extends to like Bo Bichette's haircut and the, and the uniforms and the, the stadium. There's nothing in major league baseball that quite looks like that. And so I don't know if, if we're, really drilling deep on this March Madness metaphor. Now, the fact that it's Tampa as the one seed and not the twins or the Astros or the Yankees, like that is sort of like the year where, where like Xavier or Gonzaga gets the, the regional one seed where you, you know, you want Davidson to go up against Duke or Kansas or you at, or uh, UNC. Uh, so that is, I guess that is one complaint I have about it, but it's a minor complaint. And I don't, I don't I certainly don't expect Toronto to beat Tampa Bay in the first round. Uh but I you know I th- I think that they're going to put on a good show and I I think they really do embody that sort of underdog quality more than anybody in the National League including the Marlins who just they just feel like a fluke. Like there's an, I don't know that I see this is another data point on a positive trajectory for the franchise uh with the exception of, of maybe some of their younger guys coming up and performing well but uh, it's not it's not the same. It doesn't feel like a linear step. Maybe that's a, a better way to put it. Whereas Toronto getting into the eight seed and when there is an eight seed and making a little bit of noise in the playoffs would feel like an appropriate linear step for the trajectory that franchise is on. Something that kind of illustrates the wide openness of the AL field and how even a lot of these matchups look is that if you look at the Fangraph odds for winning the wildcard series and making the LDS at this point, Tampa has a 56% chance. No other American League team is above 52. So basically, all these series are 52-48 or 51-49, 50-50 toss-ups. So I guess that's potentially more fun. We could see a lot of three-game series, but you don't have that upset quality. Yeah, I think one positive aspect of this season is of the expansion of the playoff field is that all of the teams that I think we sensed had bright futures that had better days ahead and were clearly hending, heading for contending status, but were not necessarily locks in 2020, they all made it. And maybe they would have made it anyway, but I think some of them may have made it a year earlier than they would have otherwise. And at the very least, this guaranteed that they would be there. Like coming into this season, you know, given how well they've played, it's a little tough to remember, but the Padres and even to a greater extent, I think the White Sox were not seen as locks necessarily. Like clearly they were on the up swing and they had made a lot of exciting moves and it seemed like they were going to break through either this year or maybe next year, but it wasn't clear that the White Sox had definitely done enough. And those two teams, as we speak, have identical 34 and 21 records and they've just sailed into the playoffs. Would they have done that in a 162-game season? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe they run into issues at some point like the Padres did in the second half of last season. And then you've got teams like the Blue Jays, for instance, or the Reds even, who, you know, if you had not expanded the playoff field, maybe you don't get those teams in there and you have to wait another year to see them break through. So I think that's a, a positive there. There aren't that many teams that didn't make it that I feel like, man, I was really looking forward to seeing them. You know, yes, I would have liked to see Mike Trout actually make the playoffs under any circumstances, whatever it took, and that hasn't happened. But you look at all those other teams, and they've either been there fairly recently, they've had chances before, they're just not really ready yet, you know, like the Tigers and the Orioles, or maybe their window has kind of closed or is closing. And so it's not that surprising to see them miss out. So 
there's nothing that totally pains me here. And, you know, if you're a a Mets fan or a, a Phillies fan or a Rockies fan, then there's plenty that pains you. And and I don't mean to minimize your pain, but just as someone who wants the most entertaining selection of teams, I feel like we came out pretty well here. Yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that one nice thing about the 16-team playoff is there's no like hard luck team that would have been nice to see in the playoffs, but but uh, but missed it. Like the Brewers a few years ago, the Mets seem to be like on the bubble pretty much every year. Uh, But like, yeah, like you said, the Angels, the Phillies, the the Mets, the Rockies, the teams that had a shot and missed it, they were assuming the Phillies miss it, I guess. Uh, they have earned missing the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. And I think even a broader point, and this could probably be a bigger or longer conversation, but it, it probably bears saying that we had a season and we made it to the end of that season, which was not at all assured and at various times looked very unlikely. And yet here we are with just a few days left to go and they're there. They did it. And then the playoffs start. And even though this is not really a bubble, it's kind of a quasi bubble. It should at least be a a little safer than the regular season has been. So one would hope that the worst is behind Major League Baseball and the worst did not quite come to pass. You know, and I, I think before the season started, my assumption was that if they did start, they would finish, whether it was safe or not, just because there was so much inertia, so much momentum, so much incentive to finish. You know, they they got through so much to get to that point, and there's so much money at stake that I figured they would just power through. And that is basically what happened because, you know, a week into the season, you had the Marlins totally sidelined. You had a, a bunch of other teams not playing. You then had the Cardinals outbreak later, and at various points, it it looked like the end of the season might be imminent. We might be days away from just conceding that this was not going to happen, and that hasn't happened. And, you know, we haven't had any players get COVID during the season and, to our knowledge, get seriously ill or, or have, you know, devastating consequences because of it. We haven't had a a death that is directly tied to baseball or or something like that, kind of the worst case scenario that we had dreaded. And we've gotten to this point, and I don't think you can say that competitive integrity has been maintained perfectly. I mean, all the rules that changed, all the seven-inning doubleheaders and the teams that were sidelined for weeks at a time and came back. I mean, this is not a normal season, clearly, but... We've gotten to this point where the standings at least look more or less like regular season standings in a 60 game season with a 16 playoff field. You know, all of the teams are in roughly the same range of games played. It could have been worse in so many ways. And, you know, I don't think this necessarily vindicates every decision MLB made because you just don't know. Maybe they got lucky. You know, so much of this came down to chance and Were you going to be exposed to the virus at a certain time or was a player or a a team employee going to be especially susceptible to it? And that easily could have happened. And you could still say that it just wasn't worth the risk. But I think looking back at the low points leading up to it and even after it started, I think everyone involved has to say, yeah, this worked out fairly well, all things considered. And I'm happy that we have had baseball on the whole for the past couple of months and for the next month. Yeah, I 
it worked out. I know it definitely worked out better than I expected because I thought this plan was pretty irresponsible when the season started. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I, I think the the fact that we didn't have any of those mass cancellations when we were having like five or six positive tests at a time uh, per team in the first couple weeks of the, the season, that sort of went away. I don't know if that's a result of people being smarter or just luck or, or what the underlying causes were. Uh, but that data point does seem to indicate that for whatever reason, baseball has gotten better at doing this safely, uh, even dating back to the the start of the season. So I think that, you know, I don't know how, how much locker is involved in that or how repeatable this would be. You know, I still have a lot of ambivalence about baseball going on, even though that worst case scenario that I thought was a, a really tangible possibility that a player or a coach could die. I was very prepared to, to, to have to deal with that. Um, even though that didn't come to pass, I'm not wild about the symbolism, even as we get toward the end of the regular season, I'm not wild about the symbolism of normalizing these tent pole societal events during this period of mass death and mass unemployment. Um, while, you know, while the society not to bring back the cliche again, but like while the society isn't operating at a level where we ought to have pro sports, I think that there's still a, um, you know, an, an argument to be made that, that it still wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, but I, yeah, like, like you said, Ben, I have a, you, you can't be anything but happy with the, with the results and in how things turned out and however shaky the process felt, uh, at various points down the line, I'm, I'm relieved that we're getting to the end of this season, that uh, that we're going to get through a, a postseason. You know, God knows what's going to happen if they allow fans for the league championship series and the World Series. This is being discussed right now, uh, particularly if they're playing those in Texas. But so far, we haven't seen disaster, and you know, that then disaster was definitely uh, a real possibility for large large portions of the regular season. All right, so uh, we're going to take a quick break here and come back on the other side with our awards picks, which is another thing I know I feel really good about. So (laughs) don't go anywhere. When it comes to scoring great hires for your business, you may be up against some obstacles like lots of applicants, but difficulty finding the right ones for your job or finding the time to hire while running your business, plus trying to ensure workplace safety. That's why you need ZipRecruiter on your team. No matter the industry, healthcare to manufacturing to business services, ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash ringer MLB. First, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to more than 100 job sites. And then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology hustles for you to find people with the right experience for your job, and it invites them to apply. In fact, check out this stat. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So add ZipRecruiter to your roster to help you win the hiring game. To try ZipRecruiter for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, we're back. 
with more Ringer MLB show, what we're going to do now is go through our awards picks. So we did this, uh, it seems like about 48 hours ago at the midpoint of the season. Uh, we did midseason awards picks and some of these picks are different. Uh, so just as last time, Zach has tallied up our ballots. Bobby is too busy or too cowardly or both to participate this time. So it's just the three of us uh, voting one, two, three for the six major awards. And Zach is going to tally up a winner. Uh, so let's start with American League MVP. I think American League MVP is the most interesting change since midseason. As a reminder of what we had midseason, Shane Bieber was number one, even though Ben is anti-pitcher for MVP. Uh, we had Nelson Cruz number two, and then a third place tie between Brandon Lau and Anthony Rendon. And most of those names are completely gone now. Uh, so the results we have in the honorable mention or others receiving votes category we have Tim Anderson and Mike Trout. Mike Trout not making the top three in our ballots. So the top three, we have third place, Jose Ramirez. Second place, Shane Bieber. And first place, Jose Abreu, Chicago White Sox. Of note is that the three of us each picked a different winner, which I think just goes to show how close this race is. Yeah, I, I don't know. You could pick any one of 10 different people for this award. This is the one that I felt the least clarity about. I picked Bieber number one, Abreu two, Trout three. And I think the fact that I picked Trout three uh, is just me throwing my hands up in the air. Jose Ramirez has got a lot of momentum right now. I, I, if the BBWA voted today, I would imagine that he, either him or maybe Abreu ends up winning this award. I have a little bit of ambivalence uh, and, this I think this caused uh, Mookie Betts to suffer on my National League ballot too. Uh, a little bit of ambivalence using uh, a guy who who contributes a lot on defense in a season this short. It's just it's a statistical uh, impossibility. But he's hit really well. I don't know. There's like I said, I picked Bieber. There could be seven guys that uh, um, that I'd be okay with winning this award, including Anderson and Lemayhu, who I would have uh, put on on my ballot if they had played another ten games. But you know. One IL stint in the season, the short is a huge chunk of time to miss. Yeah, I went with Ramirez and I fully acknowledge that that could be recency bias, except that the whole season is recent. <laughs> so I don't even know how biased it is. I don't think Ramirez was on any of our ballots or really even in consideration at midseason, but he's had an incredible September and September was almost half of the season. So I think I'm okay with it. And yes, he did have the walk-off on Tuesday night that put Cleveland into the playoffs. And so that is fresh on my mind, but you know, he's uh, an excellent player over a, a long period. So it's not exactly a, a fluke. And I Went with Abreu at second, and like you, I stuck Trout at three just because, I don't know, I long for some sort of normality in my life. <laughs> and, and Trout on an MVP ballot just gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling, even if he wasn't at the top. And I think he's uh, he legitimately deserves it as much as really anyone else I would have put in that spot because I'm not taking the, the team performance too much into account. And I, I think just Broadly speaking, you know, I'm writing something about this right now. And Zach, you really wrote about it before the season started that wins above replacement just is not going to be all that helpful for us in making these picks and trying to find separation between players because 
everyone is in that same range. I mean, you have, you know, 20 guys at the top of the war leaderboard within a win or so, and there's just no difference between 3.1 and 3.0 and 2.9. And that's what you're deciding between, really. And so I I spoke to an AL MVP voter and an NL MVP voter who will be making their ballots out in the next few days. And in the past, they have relied very heavily on war, certainly to kind of cut people off and and establish an early list and then, you know, have kind of a a threshold above which you you have to be to be a, a leading contender. And this year, they're looking at it just to make sure that they're not missing anyone who's in consideration, really. But that's about it. You just can't really use it to pick between this guy or that guy. And I should also mention, you know, not only do you have to worry about the small sample and about defensive stats in small samples, but there's also the consideration of opponent quality, right? There's so much variation, I think, in the quality of opposing hitters that pitchers have faced and opposing pitchers that hitters have faced. And there's some variation in a normal season, but this year, Not only do you have a short schedule, but you're also only facing some opponents. And so if you're in a a weaker division or a stronger division, that could really affect your stats. And I haven't actually dug into that that much. So that might end up changing my pick here. Plus, you know, teams have five games or so left and five games in a 10% of the season. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the equivalent of like a, a couple of weeks of a regular season. So given that all of these players are so close, that might actually change things. I went with Abreu in part because I think when awards races are so close, I think context actually does matter. Something like team record, which I would not consider if Mike Trout is two war ahead of everyone else in the league, I'd say, okay, he's clearly the most valuable player. But when it comes down to these infinitesimally small slivers of distinction between players, I think the fact that the White Sox are currently leading the division and making the postseason for the first time in more than a decade actually does matter. Now, Chicago could still be caught by Minnesota, and if that happens, maybe Abreu wouldn't be at the top of my ballot anymore. But he also has a second best in the league in win probability added among position players. I really had a difficult time deciding between him and Anderson. Uh, But the fact that A, Abreu has hit better in clutch situations, and B, he's just played more, as Mike said, uh, was the difference for me. But I think there are two or three awards where I could conceivably change my mind between now and the end of the regular season, and this is definitely one of them. All right, who's who won our NL MVP? So NL MVP, as a reminder of where we were midseason, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. was the clear winner, and then we had Betts and Harper, second and third. Right now, just like with AL MVP, the three of us each picked a different winner. So what that left was... Manny Machado in honorable mention slash others receiving votes. Third place, Fernando Tatis Jr. And then a tie for the top of the leaderboard between Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts, each of whom, yeah, they each finished first, second, and third on one of our respective ballots. Wow. A true deadlock. Yeah. I wonder if the the real results will be this fractured or whether it's just us. I imagine so. Like, so... The point you made about about using the war leaderboard to create a shortlist, I think that makes that makes this job maybe just based on how how hard a uh, time I had uh, picking these awards as I was going through it this morning. Uh, like that leads to all kinds of chaos that you can just latch on to something. And, and honestly, in a season this short with so much statistical chaos, I'm 100 percent 
okay, like basing this mostly on narrative. That's, you know, I tried not to do that myself, but, but I think that there's almost no limit to the defensible uh, MVP choices that, that you could make. So I picked, and as a result of that, I picked a player I am generally not a huge fan of in Freddie Freeman. Um, I think that first, like the offensive standard for first base is so high because you can't contribute uh, as a two-way player. My MVP ballot would all would almost always be somebody from an up the middle position or a third or third base or a corner defensive corner outfielder who really adds a lot there like Mookie Betts. Uh, but if you're just going to contribute with your bat, a good place to start is to have a 463 on base percentage, more walks than strikeouts while hitting for power. While uh, I guess he's not leading the league anymore now that Juan Soto's got uh, enough plate appearances to qualify. And I, we'll talk about him, but like he's been the best offensive player in the national league pretty much all year. I like, he's been so good that I, that my positional hangups really don't matter. Um, I had bets to Machado three uh, Tatis. I wanted him like, he'd be such a good narrative MVPs, just not there with the numbers. And, but Soto, this is another guy who, if he had played 10 more games, I think he'd be walking away with this. Even if the nationals do finish in last place, uh, it has been so unbelievably good. Just his ability to to get on base, to hit for power, to be an offensive driver. Uh, I he didn't show up on my ballot this year, uh, but I think he goes into next year's National League MVP race as the the preseason favorite for me. Yeah, I went Betts, Tatis, Freeman, and Betts was my preseason MVP pick. I don't know whether there's some part of me that just wants that to have been right, but. I think also like he's just been incredibly consistently good throughout the season. Maybe consistency doesn't matter so much, but for instance, Tatis had an incredible first half if we're talking about this year in terms of halves and he's kind of, you know, come back to earth a bit at least offensively in the second half. Whereas Betts has just really been great all along and Mike, you mentioned being kind of uncomfortable going with someone whose case is based more on defense in a short season, but I'm not that uncomfortable if that player is Mookie Betts, you know, who yeah. we know <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> he's a, he's a pretty good fielder. This I think not we can Kevin say Kiermaier's that. This is not Kevin Kiermaier's six-war season that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like, right. I mean, Betts, Betts has been the, the second best player in baseball over a, a period of several years now. Pretty comfortable saying that he is actually a very good defender and base runner and all the rest of it. So I think I'm going with Mookie here, but again, it it really is so close that uh, it could easily go either way. It's funny, Mike, because the tiebreaker for me in choosing Tatis number one was his defense. Right now, if you look at stat casts outs above average leaderboard, he's tied for number one. And I think the problem with Tatis last year besides the fact that he was just hurt and didn't play enough in the rookie of the year race was his defense. He made a lot of errors. So even though he looks good making some incredible plays, he also missed a bunch of easy ones and he's solved that problem this year. So even if his offensive numbers have dropped a little bit in September, and I think it's undoubtable that Freeman has had a better season at the plate. I nudged Tatis ahead of him because of that all around production, because Tatis contributes at the plate and in the field and on the bases. And he has that narrative tiebreaker. So I think Freeman was just like in the American League, Freeman was a very close number two for me, but I nudged Tatis up to the top just because I think MVP 
is both a reward in the moment and a historical marker. And when I think back on this season, besides the pandemic, I, I think at least in terms of on the field play, I am going to remember Tatis first, both because of the the things he did and the discussions he sparked and also what he meant to the Padres and this story. So that's why he gets the nudge for me. But I would guess that Freeman has the edge in voters' minds, given his advantages at the plate. Yeah, I expect Freeman to win. I I mean, this what you're arguing about, Tatis, is why like I wouldn't mind doing, and maybe this is an off-season project, so maybe I shouldn't give away free content ideas on the podcast, but going back and doing like a retrospective player of the season, because that would definitely be Tatis, the guy who like really um, really drove the conversation. All right, let's, uh, let's keep moving along. A.L. Cy Young, I thought I, until I realized I had to pick Bieber for A.L. MVP, I was going to put Lance Lynn number one because this isn't real and it's my ballot and only God can judge me. But I went uh, Bieber one, Lynn two, Dylan Bundy three. This is another, it could be Bundy. It could be half a dozen other guys. Uh, I think D- Dallas Keuchel would have been an under the radar guy. But again, one IL stint takes you out for for like 15% of the season. And I just don't think he had the innings. Yeah, we had Bieber unanimously at midseason. We have him unanimously here. Second place, Lance Lynn. Third place, a tie between Kenta Maeda and Framber Valdez and Dylan Bundy, others receiving votes. Yeah, this is really the one race, I guess, where there actually is something of a war gap where you could look at the war leaderboard and just decide based on that, just because Bieber really has been so much better than everyone else. And it is a, a significant chop, drop down to anyone else. And I wasn't sure really what to do with the rest of my ballot here. I was the one who took Framber number two, and then I put Lance Lynn in third. And Lance Lynn has the bulk in more ways than one. He has uh, pitched many innings this year. That is valuable. I took Framber because, in part, he's been so valuable to that Astros pitching staff, which has really been weakened by just a, a whole host of injuries. And without Framber Valdez, they don't make the playoffs. I don't think I don't know what they do. I don't know how they replace his 70 or so innings. And they have been really excellent innings, you know, without Verlander and with others either missing or, or compromised by injury, having him step up and sort of fill that that ace-like role for them has been huge. And again, that's more of a, a narrative thing that may or may not actually matter, but I think he deserves it on the merits too. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. In NL Cy Young, I think this is the last really contentious award. Uh, and also, all of the guys who are considered are going to make another start and could swing right. 
could swing the results. Like throw a no hitter or get absolutely shelled. Yeah, yeah. somebody who's there currently are a couple guys who my... got shelled off this list in the past week. Right. Yeah, and somebody who's currently off my ballot, I could conceivably move up to number one depending on what happens because the margins are so close. So right now we have Luis Castillo, others receiving votes. Then in third place, a tie between two of my favorite pitchers to watch this season, Denelson Lamette and Corbin Burns. And then you Darvish in second place and Jacob deGrom narrowly in first. I ex- that's surprising. I expected having to defend leaving Trevor Bauer off my ballot, but apparently everybody else did too. <laughs> so well, the advantage that Bauer had early in the season was his outrageous strikeout rate when he was striking out basically half the batters he was facing. But now if you look at his strikeout rate, it's actually behind DeGrom's and it's behind Burns's and it's behind Lamette's. So while he also has other advantages, I think they're more luck based. Like he is allowed the lowest batting average on balls in play and he has the highest mm-hmm. strand rate among the bunch. But 92. I don't 2.2% strand rate, which like, is he putting pine tar on the bases too? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't give him quite as much credit as I do, for instance, for the just the the consistent performance of DeGrom, who hasn't had really a bad start all season. Uh, Corbin Burns, I think, he, he finished second on my list. I was splitting hairs between him and DeGrom. Burns just doesn't have quite enough innings to move him to number one, but that's a, a real case you can make for him. Uh, Lamette, I think, has been underrated all season because of everything else going on in San Diego, but those numbers are absurd. A 2.07 ERA, a 2.5 FIP. So those were the guys who finished one, two, and three on my ballot, but you could also consider Castillo and Bauer and Hendricks and Clayton Kershaw and Aaron Nola. It's it's a really fun race. Yeah, I went DeGrom, Darvish, Castillo, DeGrom, maybe because I'm Mr. Chalk and he was my preseason pick. And we all know that Jacob DeGrom is a, a Cy Young award-winning pitcher and caliber pitcher, and he's been great again. I left Bauer off. I mean, A, I'm slightly suspicious or more than slightly about his spin rates and how exactly he is achieving them. But even if he is uh, using some sort of foreign substance that does not make him alone, I think most pitchers are. Maybe he's just using it more effectively or started using it later. So I wouldn't necessarily penalize him for that. I just think the luck that you mentioned he doesn't really measure up if you're trying to strip out some of that and maybe consider the quality of competition. I think you can make stronger cases for others. And I think you can maybe make a stronger case even for Luis Castillo in the same rotation. And I did. I I took Castillo above Bauer. So that's kind of my my. Uh, conclusion with Bauer, I reluctantly left off Burns and I'm rooting for Burns because he was my breakout pick and I want to look smart, except that I made that breakout pick not thinking that he was necessarily going to be so much better than he was last year, but just that he would be luckier than he was last year because he had just a stratospheric Babbitt. It was over 400. He had the highest home run per fly ball rate on record last year. And I figured, well, if he just does the same thing and has normal luck, then he'll be good and I'll look smart. And instead, he went in the other direction. So he's had great luck as far as we can tell this year. He's barely allowed any home runs on his fly balls. He has a fairly low BABIP. And so he has that sub two ERA, but the underlying stats, which are really still excellent. But if you correct for all of them, maybe not quite as uh, overwhelming. And as Zach mentioned, he has fewer innings pitched than these other pitchers we're talking about because 
he has only made eight starts and was uh, briefly removed from the rotation. So that's why I left him off. But I think it would be a, a fun story if he makes it on. Yeah, it'd be awesome. I've been a huge Burns fan since he was at St. Mary's. And it's it's not that big an inning gap, but also from him to DeGrom or somebody like Lamette. Uh, but the performance is not so much greater that I want to have him leave. Like it's a, you know, one seven, seven ERA versus like two, one or two, two. And, you know, if he was, if, if he was like a full run lower and 10 innings shorter, then it would be a different conversation. But, um, I don't know, maybe, but again, like, like Zach said, he's off my ballot. Now I was looking for a reason to get him on. He comes up huge on Thursday night. It's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I, I just said Lamette was number three on my ballot. When I filled it out this morning, I put Darvish number three. So that just shows how closely uh, these candidates are stacked up that looking at the leaderboard right now during this conversation, I was like, hey, that Lamette guy looks pretty good. I should put him on my ballot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go to AO Rookie of the Year, which is, I think, the one I felt most strongly about. But I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Midseason, we split. We had Lewis Robert. And Kyle Lewis tied at the top of the ballot. Now Kyle Lewis is the unanimous choice. Uh, Robert, number two. Sean Murphy, three. And James Karinchak, others receiving votes. I think the difference is that we made that initial determination at midseason. And in the month of September, Robert is hitting 091, 208, 136. Uh, So I think he has definitely fallen behind Lewis in my ranking. And it seems like that's the same for you guys as well. Yeah, I put him third, and I considered putting Karen Jack ahead of him. I considered leaving him off my ballot altogether because, I mean, it's a a sub-300 OBP, and there are other good rookies in the American League this year. I think Lewis is just, it's a combination of performance, but also if, you, if you're interested in narrative helium, I think he's been uh, just a huge star for Seattle, for a Seattle team that was in the playoff hunt longer than anybody expected. Uh, so, yeah, I went Lewis one, Sean Murphy two, Lou Bob three. This wasn't as easy a call for me, I think, as for you guys. I I thought about it a little bit, and maybe that was because I was kind of anchored to thinking this would be Robert all year long. But uh, like you, Mike, I think I just have trouble handing it to someone with a sub 300 on base percentage, even though I think that Robert is legitimately valuable as an all around player and a defender and a base runner. I just don't think that's quite enough because Lewis really has a pretty significant offensive edge. And so I went Lewis, Robert, Karen Chack, although I did strongly consider Justice Sheffield for that third spot. I thought about Justice Sheffield for the third spot ahead of uh, ahead of Lou Bob just to own Zach, but <laughs> I couldn't pull the trigger. It's This is a solid field. And like a, a sub 300 OBP for somebody who contributes all around the diamond like Robert does, who hits for that kind of power is not a deal breaker, but it's just a, I mean, maybe it's just that we didn't get the extra 60% of the season for some of these guys to, to get figured out and fall back to earth. Like, I don't know if Sean Murphy would continue walking like, uh, like prime Barry bonds all year, for instance, but, uh, just based on what we have right now, I think there's a, a big step statistically, even though if we're drafting these guys for who's going to be the best player in the long term. Robert is still probably number one for me. I don't know. Having a catcher with a 125 OPS plus is pretty darn good. Although, like you say, a lot of that is propped up by his walk rate. Yeah, I don't know. I I make a lot of jokes about how like I was higher on X player 
uh, since like his sophomore year of college. I think that is literally true for me and Sean Murphy. Um, but I, I still don't think that, that he's this good a hitter. I think he'd be like a league average hitter, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't see him getting on base as much in the, in the long term. even though I think he's a really good player who's sort of gone under the radar. So for national league rookie of the year, speaking of players who excelled in college baseball is Jake Cronenworth. And I actually know where he went to college because when I wrote about Jake Cronenworth a week ago, the University of Michigan baseball Twitter account tweeted it out saying, look at Jake Cronenworth go. Uh, he is the unanimous winner for our National League Rookie of the Year pick. Uh, Devin Williams was the unanimous number two. And then Tony Gonsolin got two third place votes. Alec Baum got one third place vote. So that is our order for the last pick. But I felt really bad not giving the award to Devin Williams, who has been maybe the best relief pitcher in all of baseball this year. But Cronenworth has been just good enough and played just enough that I I couldn't justify moving Williams ahead. Yeah, same. 52 strikeouts in 25 innings. <laughs> he struck out 52 of the 94 batters he's faced. That's pretty good. That's uh, like the best ever. <laughs> Maybe that's right up there with Aroldis Chapman's record. You know, I don't know if he could have sustained that over a full season, but he's been incredible and the changeup is, uh, is really great. So I had a tough time with the third spot. I eventually went with Tony Gonsolin, but I could see a, a bunch of different guys fitting in there. Yeah, Gonsolin has been really good and probably been oversh- overshadowed a little bit by uh, Dustin May, who's mm-hmm. who's also pitched pretty well this year. Um, yeah, Cronenworth, if Williams gets it, absolutely no complaints because he's been just that spectacular. I'm just, you know, all things being equal, I pick the the position player over the, the reliever. Um, and I don't think that's that controversial, even though as the University of Michigan uh, baseball team Twitter account would uh, would recognize Jake Cronenworth was once a hell of a relief pitcher himself. So, if only he still could be. If we we still allowed two way players, but alas, yeah. More on that when we get back to our over unders because the <laughs> the which will be greater Shohei Otani innings pitched versus basket of other two way players uh, batters faced and and plate appearances that is coming down to the wire, my friends. So we'll we'll pick that up uh on a later podcast what a deflating question with results <laughs> yeah i gotta tell you what so ben and i were looking at these before the show and a couple of them have really illustrated the bleakness of the world that we inhabit this was not my intention <laughs> going into the season but right. yeah there are a, a Good couple tease real for, downers for next there. episode we will illustrate the bleakness of the world we inhabit well <laughs> i'm not in. sure that we can yeah, I'm not whenever sure that we, we can, uh, that. we might have to wait for the playoffs to happen. Yeah, because the the prop bet was Nate Pearson, uh, regular season and playoff appearances versus John Tavares, and right now it's five to four John Tavares over Nate Pearson as the the Maple Leafs once again. They've never let me down yet. All right, that seems like a good place to end this show. Thank you, Zach, for joining me. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's show. Thanks to Shane Beaver, Denelson Lamette, and John Tavares for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the last weekend of the regular season, and we'll see you next time.